0: Well this past week I read biography of the great Baptist missionary William Carey. William Carey's one of my personal heroes of faith. He's also the namesake of our youngest son. As I was reading through this biography and preparing for the message this morning, I was struck by how well Carey's life and ministry illustrates the text we're going to be looking at today in 1 Corinthians The wisdom of God that so often appears foolish and disgraceful in the eyes of those who have not yet experienced the regenerating work of God's Spirit and have not yet come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. William Carey is remembered as a great and godly missionary who expected great things from God and attempted great things for God. Indeed, he was. The truth is that William Carey started out as a man who was just about as ordinary and unremarkable as they come. As his great-grandson wrote in the biography, Outwardly, Carey had nothing in his favor as a preacher. He was short, impoverished, lacked a college education. His hands were seamed and stained by leather stitching. His appearance and manner were that of a peasant. And his wig was odious and stiff. In his early years of ministry, Carey had a reputation among the Baptists as being a very poor and dull preacher a man who struggled greatly in the pulpit and was even turned down at first for ordination. He pastored many small congregations, or I should say a few small congregations in rural England that uh, many others were not willing to touch. These were churches that were riddled with problems, churches that were so small they were unable to pay him a full salary, and as a result, Kerry supplemented his living, working as a cobbler or a shoemaker. Eventually, he was ordained by the particular Baptists. He developed a great burden for people in faraway lands that had never heard of Jesus Christ or had the opportunity to hold a Bible in their hands. And that passion for foreign missions consumed him. Eventually, Carey persuaded his colleagues in England to send him off as a missionary, uncharted territory in those days for most of the English Protestants. A lot of people either assumed that Carey would fail or else that he would die of a tropical disease, but ultimately God spared his life and used him and his associates to establish a successful mission in India that saw the Bible translated into many different languages and many hundreds of Hindus and Muslims converted to saving faith in Christ. In God's providence, Carey became a gifted linguist, so much so that the British hired him as a professor at the government college. And for the next 40 years, William Carey faithfully served his Lord in India and did incredible things for the sake of God's kingdom, but never forgot about his humble beginnings and his true identity in Christ. There's an interesting story. At one Lord's Day, when Carey entered the pulpit of the mission church, he found a pair of old shoes hanging from the desk. You see, someone who knew about his old uh, occupation as a shoemaker had put the shoes there in order to insult him, to make him look foolish. Because in those days, uh, in India, shoemaking and leather work was a job that was reserved for the lowest caste in society. Well, Professor Carey went into the pulpit, he saw the shoes hanging from the desk. He knew why they were there. But he simply left them there. And he said to the congregation, The God who can do for and through a poor shoemaker as much as He has done for and through me can bless and can use anyone. The very humblest person may trust Him. When William Carey came to die in the year 1834, now a world-famous missionary, he gave explicit instructions of what he wanted written on his tombstone. Words that came from a hymn written by Isaac Watts. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm On thy kind arms I fall. You see, William Carey, for all of his success, for all of his fame, understood the biblical principle we are looking at today from 1 Corinthians 1, the truth that God is is pleased to use the foolish and the weak things of this world to demonstrate that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and that the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're still in chapter 1. I'm going to be reading today from verse 18 down to chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. I remind you as I read that this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, please God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear And in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text today in 1 Corinthians sets up a vivid contrast between two kinds of wisdom that originate from two very different sources. On the one hand, the wisdom of this world, which is foolishness to God. On the other hand, the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to man. And as the apostle launches into this subject of wisdom and folly, he's going to speak to us tongue-in-cheek about man's so-called wisdom and God's so-called foolishness. He's adopting in this passage the perspective of an unbelieving person who does not naturally accept the things of God and who despises the things of God as something that is utterly foolish and weak and pathetic. And so with God's help this morning, we're going to follow Paul's lead. We're going to adopt his manner of speaking as we learn from God's word about the wisdom of man and the foolishness of God. By the way, this is one of those passages that remind us that the chapter and verse divisions we find in our modern Bibles are not original or inspired by God, and at times those chapter divisions have a tendency to lead us astray. The chapter division that we find there after verse 31 gives the impression that Paul is beginning a new subject when in fact the entire section down to verse 5 should be considered as one unit of thought. The apostle is considering the theme of wisdom and folly from three different angles. In verses 18 to 25, Paul begins by declaring the folly of the evangel, or to put it another way, the foolishness of the gospel message. Then in verses 26 to 31, he turns to the Corinthians themselves and points out the apparent foolishness of God's decision to elect them and to call them to saving faith. And then finally, in chapter 2, verses 1-5, to the apostle points the finger at himself and his own evangelistic ministry and highlights the foolishness of the preacher. And so that's where we're heading this morning and also next week. Number one, the folly of God's evangel. Number two, the folly of God's election. Number three, the folly of God's evangelist. Three E words that I hope will help you remember the main thrust of Paul's argument in this important section of God's Word. And this morning, we will only have time to cover the first of those three points. The apostle begins with the folly of the evangel in verses 18 to 25. And of course, the word evangel simply means gospel or good news the good news about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection to new life. We begin our study here in verse 18. It's important to see. Paul is still dealing in this section with the subject we've been considering for the past two Sundays, God's design for unity in the church, which is set in contrast with the dysfunction and the disunity that existed in Corinth. was a church that had little factions over here, little cliques over there that were lining up behind their favorite teacher, so that some were saying, I'm of Paul, and others were saying, I'm of Apollos, and others were saying, I'm of Peter. And some were even claiming the name of Christ in order to justify their sinful sectarian attitudes. Paul is dealing in these verses with the subject of church unity. He will continue dealing with that subject to the end of chapter 4. First identifying the problem in Corinth and then working towards the solution verses 10 to 17 Paul identifies the presenting issue which is tearing this church apart internal division and schism which has nothing to do with theology and everything to do with personality and with pride with the pursuit of a kind of wisdom that Paul will now unmask in the verses we're considering today it's the wisdom that James describes later on in his epistle as earthly sensual and demonic For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, James says, in every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There are two kinds of wisdom, brothers and sisters. A demonic wisdom that leads to disorder and strife and every evil practice, and a heavenly wisdom that leads to peace and righteousness. James understood the difference between these two kinds of wisdom, and so did Paul. And now Paul has already introduced the subject of worldly wisdom in verse 17. A form of wisdom that was at the heart of all of the problems in this church. Verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The key phrase to notice there in verse 17 is what Paul calls a word of wisdom in Greek, the Sophia Logu. The Corinthians, as we've emphasized in previous sermons, were enamored with rhetoric. They were enamored with public speaking because this was the kind of wisdom the Greeks were chasing after in the culture of that day. They loved eloquence. They loved rhetoric. They sought after anyone and everyone who had abilities and gifts in those areas. That's why Apollos was so revered by a certain segment of the Corinthian church. He was an excellent public speaker, well-educated in rhetoric, a man who could greatly impress the Greeks with his refined style of preaching in contrast to Paul, who was not nearly as polished and eloquent in his speaking ministry. Now, of course, as we said last week, Paul and Apollos were teaching the same doctrine, they were preaching the same gospel, they were serving the same God, and they were motivated by the same motives. In the Corinthians, Apollos was revered for his rhetoric, while Paul was viewed by some as a simpleton who is not worth listening to. And the church was dividing into little cliques and factions because of this issue. What Paul calls in verse 17, a word of wisdom. The believers in Corinth were seeking the word of wisdom when they should have been seeking the word of the cross in verse 18. There's a play on words that Paul is setting up here in these verses. It's not quite as obvious in our English Bibles as it is in the Greek. It's a contrast Paul is setting up between the word of wisdom in verse 17 and the word of the cross in verse 18. Two different words that represent two kinds of wisdom, one earthly, And one heavenly. All the Corinthians cared about was the word of wisdom, the outward form, the outward style of the preaching and teaching in their churches. But what Paul cared about was the content of the preaching, which was the word of the cross. That's the point he is driving home here for the worldly Corinthians: the content of the message preached, the object upon which the message focuses, is infinitely more important than the style of preaching or the way that it's packaged. A few years ago, when Leslie and I were living in Chicago, we visited one of the museums downtown that was full of wild animals that had been professionally stuffed by taxidermists and then put on display in lifelike settings and habitats. And if you did not know any better, you would think that some of the animals were alive and well. You would think that some of the animals were staring you down and considering whether to pounce on you to have you for lunch. You know something? Every last one of the animals in that museum was dead. Lifeless. They had the appearance of being alive. They had the appearance of beauty and health. But they had nothing inside of them that would give them life. May I say that many Christians... So-called Christians. Many so-called Christian churches are just like the animals in that museum. They have the outward appearance of life, but in reality they are dead and lifeless because the truth of God and the message of the cross is not in them or else it is not central to the ministry. Brothers and sisters, the church in ancient Corinth cared far more about the outward packaging than they did about the content. I don't think it's a great stretch to say that the church in North America struggles with precisely the same tendency today. We think that the packaging will attract lost people to the Lord Jesus. And so we pour out all of our attention and our resources on anything and everything except for the main thing, which is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. What Paul calls here in verse 18, the Word of the Cross. And if the cross is not central to the preaching and ministry of the church, you can have all the fancy buildings in the world, you can have all the professional mu- musicians and the programs, the entertaining speakers, all of the crowds you want, but one thing you will not have is spiritual life and vitality with people repenting of sin and coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Very often we seek after the, wisdom, the word of wisdom as the Corinthians did, Pouring our attention into methods and external packaging when what we really need is a focus on the word of the cross. The message that Jesus died for sinners so that those who repent of sin and believe in Him, embracing Him as Lord, can have eternal life. Fundamental distinction here in our text is a distinction between the word of wisdom in verse 17 And the word of the cross in verse 18. But the Apostle Paul goes on in verse 18 to make a second distinction between two different groups of people. One group that is in the process of being saved. And another group that is in the process of perishing in unbelief. For the word of the cross is folly, Paul says, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Just as there are two different kinds of wisdom. One kind of wisdom from below, one from above. So there are two types of people in this world. And every person who has ever lived and walked on this planet falls into one of these two categories. The perishing who are dead in trespasses and sins or the alive who are being, who have come to life in Jesus Christ. First group that Paul addresses here in verse 18 is the perishing. Those who are lost in unbelief. Those who are headed to an eternity in hell. You'll notice that Paul identifies the members of this first group on the basis of their response to the word of the cross, the kind of wisdom they embrace. Very clearly, those who are perishing are those who reject the word of the cross, who believe that the message of Christ's crucifixion for sinners is foolishness and stupidity. You may be interested to know, in the original Greek, the word Paul uses is moria from which we get the English word moron or moronic. It doesn't get much stronger than that, friends. Here we have a kind of worldly, demonic wisdom that sees Christian proclamation of the cross as moronic. A foolish message that could only be believed and embraced by fools. A little later on in the page in verse 22 and 23, Paul will give us two examples of people who belong to this category, the perishing. Those who lived in His own time and His own culture who rejected the message of the cross and concluded that it was nothing but foolishness and stupidity. One example that Paul cites there in verse 22 were the Jews who sought after signs and miracles in order to validate religious truth. The other example he gives in those verses are the Greeks who are constantly seeking after wisdom and pursuing man-made systems of theology or philosophy. According to the Jewish worldview, the Christian proclamation of a crucified Messiah was both blasphemous and scandalous. And that's the main reason why so many of the Jews living in the first century rejected Christianity and disregarded the eyewitness testimony that Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified and risen from the dead. By and large, the Jewish people living at that time were expecting a triumphant victorious Messiah, a military conqueror who would come to overthrow the Roman oppressor and would once again rule and reign supreme from David's throne. And what the vast majority of these men and women could not see or understand was that the Messiah revealed in the scripture would first suffer and die before he would rule and reign. They did not understand, nor could they see, that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was also the victorious king of Isaiah 9, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You may remember even in our studies from Mark's Gospel, Peter struggled deeply with this aspect of Jesus' teaching. When Jesus said to Peter that He was heading to Jerusalem to be crucified, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked Him. And he said, far be it from You, Lord, this will never happen to You. The majority of Jewish people could scarcely imagine the Messiah suffering and dying on a Roman cross because the law of Moses states in Deuteronomy 21, 23, a person who was hung on a wooden tree had come under God's curse. And how could the blessed Messiah of God be cursed? How could he be abandoned by God? why Paul tells us in verse 22 and 23, the word of the cross was a stumbling block to Jews, a teaching that was considered blasphemous and scandalous, one of the main reasons why Paul was often thrown out of the synagogues and even physically attacked when he opened his mouth to speak the word of the cross. On the one hand were the majority of Jewish people, on the other hand were the Gentiles, wisdom-loving Greeks and Romans who were not so much scandalized by the cross as they were disgusted and perplexed by it. You see, for the Romans, crucifixion was a despicable punishment that was reserved for the scum of the earth. It was certainly not something the Romans would ever associate with a holy God. Roman philosopher Cicero once expressed his own disgust for crucifixion, saying the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, from his eyes, and from his ears. The average Roman was revolted and disgusted by the cross and did his best to put it out of his mind. But for the Greeks living in cities like Corinth and Athens, Athens, Paul's preaching about the cross would have been more perplexing than anything. It's especially true when we consider the message of the cross alongside the message of the resurrection. You see, every time the sins, every time, Ever since the time of Plato, who lived a few hundred years before Christ, most of the Greeks had come to believe that the immaterial soul was good and that the physical body was evil and corrupt and wicked. And so most of the Greek intellectuals living at the time viewed salvation as the liberation of the soul from the body, which they considered to be little more than a prison. Greeks who had come under the influence of Plato had great difficulty believing that the body was part of good, God's good and gracious creation. They had difficulty believing that the Bible was to be affirmed, and, or that the body was to be affirmed and valued, and not something to be cast off and rejected as a piece of worthless garbage. The Greek intellectuals could not wrap their minds around this part of the Christian message. As a result, they tended to ridicule the word of the cross as foolishness. It was a religion for intellectual lightweights, not a doctrine to be affirmed and believed by intellectuals and philosophers. You now, back in the year 1857, a very interesting and telling piece of graffiti was discovered in the city of Rome. Archaeological evidence that confirms the utter disdain Paul is talking about here in this chapter. I want to put a picture of it on the screen so you can see it for yourself. This graffiti, as you can probably tell, is a blasphemous portrait of the Lord Jesus inscribed into stone by someone who hated the Christian message and was seeking to ridicule the early Christians. In the graffiti, Jesus is hanging on the cross and represented with the head of a donkey. And then to the left of the cross is the image of a Christian man who is worshiping this crucified donkey with his arms raised high in the posture of prayer. And underneath of the picture is a mocking inscription written in large and messy Greek letters. Alexamenos worships his God. Brothers and sisters, disdain for the Christian message, disdain for the cross of Christ is not something new. We are not the first generation of people to experience it. The word of the cross, the preaching of the cross has always been folly to those who are perishing in sin. It will continue to be folly until the appointed time comes and our Lord returns to the earth. It is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles It is, as Paul says elsewhere in the book of 2 Corinthians, the aroma of death to those who are perishing, but a life-giving perfume to those who are being saved. And that brings us to the second category of people that Paul talks about in verse 18. Those men and women who have been saved by God's grace, those men and women who are in the process of being made holy in preparation for the day when we will stand before the Lord Jesus clothed in the perfect righteousness of Him who died in our place for our sins. The one who became a curse on our behalf. The one who paid the death penalty that we should have paid because of our rebellion to God. To those who have been sovereignly called to saving faith in Christ, whether they be Jew or Greek, the cross of Christ can be seen for what it truly is, and it is the power of God for salvation. Furthermore, we who have been called from death to life are enabled to see on the cross, cross the Lord Jesus, who is both the wisdom of God and the power of God incarnate. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 with so much boldness, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's the reason why we Christians can sing words that are so familiar to us in that old hymn, Oh, the old rugged cross so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For t'was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown." First contrast that Paul makes in our text is between the word of wisdom, the word of the cross. The second contrast that he makes in this text is between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And underlying both of these contrasts is the third contrast we've already mentioned between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. A heavenly wisdom and an earthly wisdom. To unregenerate humanity. The wisdom of God that's displayed so beautifully and majestically in the cross of Christ is utter foolishness and stupidity. But in reality, the wisdom of unregenerate man is foolishness to God. Unregenerate man sees God's wisdom as foolish and irrational, but God sees man's wisdom as foolishness, and at the end of the day, God's opinion is the only opinion that counts. Verses 19 to 21, the apostle continues his discussion on wisdom and folly by offering two pieces of evidence that prove the superiority of God's wisdom. One piece of evidence that comes from the scripture and a second piece of evidence that comes from experience. Looking first of all to the inspired scripture, Paul quotes in verse 19 a passage from the book of Isaiah that exposes the folly of man's wisdom. Isaiah chapter 29 verse 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. During the time of Isaiah the prophet, the mighty Assyrian empire was Israel's greatest threat and Israel's greatest fear. And faced with the continual threat of an Assyrian invasion, the kings of Judah and the wise men of Israel chose to put their trust in worldly wisdom and shrewd political maneuvering instead of putting their trust in God. His ability to protect them. His ability and His willingness to be faithful to His covenant promises. Israel's kings, Israel's wise men wanted to do things their way instead of doing things God's way. And time after time after time in the Old Testament, God had to show them His way is always the best way was a painful lesson that Israel needed to learn over the course of her history it's a lesson that you and I need to learn today as followers of Christ and members of his new covenant community the scriptures tell us in the book of Proverbs there is a way that seems right to a man but the end is the way of death And whenever you and I try to do things our way according to the wisdom of the unbelieving world around us and not according to the wisdom of God as revealed in the Scripture, we will be forced to learn the same lesson that Israel learned. God's way is always the best way. And God's way is the best way even when His way does not make sense to us and even when His way cuts against the grain of our own culture and our own society. The testimony of God's word shows us that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and we can see the truth of that statement in our everyday experience. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? By asking these rhetorical questions in verse 20, Paul is challenging the Corinthian believers to open their eyes, to have a good hard look at the world and the society around them, to look at the fallenness and the brokenness, the moral depravity of their city and their society and their culture, and to see for themselves how much good all the wisdom of the worldly wise men has done. Friends, we can take up the same challenge from the Apostle today in our own culture, in our own society. We live in a society today that is full of education, a society that is full of technology, full of government programs, full of wealth, full of material blessings. But what do we see as we look around in this society that is so full of so many wise men and experts and professionals? We see broken families, broken marriages, broken lives, rampant addiction, civil unrest, terrorism, crime, Horrific violence and war. A whole host of massive problems that we cannot seem to solve ourselves no matter how hard we try, no matter how many PhDs we produce. We have more worldly wisdom today than we know what to do with, but yet our world today is a chaotic mess that is full of injustice and wickedness and confusion. And to be honest, friends, it doesn't look like things are going to get any better. And God's message to Canadians is the same as God's message to Corinthians. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so friends, we must choose in our own generation what type of wisdom will govern our lives and our choices. Will it be the earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom of the world or will it be the wisdom of heaven that comes from God? the wisdom that is revealed to us through His Son and through His Word. You know, in His sovereign wisdom, God has made a deliberate choice to do things His way and not to do things our way. In His sovereignty, God has chosen to frustrate the wisdom of this world, to turn that wisdom on its head so that He will get all of the glory He deserves as the author of salvation and as the only wise God. And in His wisdom, God has chosen to bring the blessing of salvation in a way that you and I would never have dreamed up in a million years. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Just meditate on that verse for a moment. Just think about that verse. Allow the mystery, allow the wisdom of God's plan to surprise you and to amaze you again. I mean, who but God would have thought of saving this sin-cursed world by sending His own Son into the world to become a human being and to die on a Roman cross? Is that the plan you would have come up with if it was up to you? Is that the plan I would have come up with if it were up to me? I don't think so like what Gordon Fee says on this text. I put the quotation in the bulletin so you can think about it this week. He says to the perishing, the cross is folly and so it is. God's folly. Which because it is God's turns out to be wiser than human wisdom. In the cross, God outsmarted His human creatures and thereby nullified that wisdom. In the same cross, God also overpowered His enemies with lavish grace and forgiveness and thereby divested them of their strength. Thus played out before human eyes is the scandalous and contradictory wisdom of God. And I love the next part. Had God consulted us for wisdom, we could have given Him a more workable plan. Something that would attract the sign seeker and the lover of wisdom. But as it is, in His own wisdom, He left us out of the consultation. We are thus left with an awful risk. Trust God and be saved by His wise folly or keep up pretensions and perish. And indeed, friends, that is the choice God's Word confronts us with this morning. Either to reject the Word of the cross and to perish eternally in sin or else to embrace the message of the cross by faith and to experience God's gracious salvation for all of eternity. The Word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god wonder this morning what your response to the preaching of the cross indicates about the condition of your heart whether the message of the cross is to you the stench of death or whether it is to you the fragrance of life whether the message of the cross is foolishness and stupidity to you As Stephen Hawking has put it recently, a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark. Or whether the message of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God for salvation. Whatever your honest response is this morning to the preaching of the cross, my hope and my prayer is that the Word of of Christ crucified for sinners will become to you by God's grace the aroma of life, a life-giving message that reveals the Lord Jesus in all of His beauty in all of His majesty and power so that you will embrace Him by faith and so you will live your life for His glory. And if you're here this morning and you already know the Lord Jesus as the wisdom and power of God, my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we will never, ever be ashamed of the cross. That we will never ever think that somehow we need to tweak the message of the cross or to modify the message of the cross or to improve the message of the cross or to tone down the message of the cross in order to make it more palatable to those men and women around us who consider it foolishness and are thus perishing in sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us learn to say with the apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen.